Good morning. Before we open God's Word together today, why don't we take just a few moments and quiet our hearts and in your own mind and soul, however you would. If you just maybe invite the Holy Spirit to connect with you, help you, teach you, show you something. That's, this is kind of all, the whole morning is a supernatural event. Every time we come together, when we open God's Word, we depend on the Holy Spirit to teach us. So let's, let's invite Him to do that together, just in the quietness of your heart for just a few moments, and then I'll pray. Holy Spirit, we sang about our surrender to God earlier, and we invite you now to <clears throat> interact with us, to teach us, to change us, to, through your supernatural power, to apply the words of the scriptures that we're going to look at today, to help us to be more like you, to help us to, to live better, to help us to love better, and to help us most of all to know you and to be known by you. Amen. So family is always supposed to be there for us when we need them. When the bottom falls out of life, we should look at family and see family members, immediate family members, the extended family members is there to, to step in, whether it's physical injury or illness, the death of a spouse or a child, the loss of a job, a special project, or personal setbacks. The irony is we really don't know how family's going to step up and do it till we need them. We don't know until the bottom falls out when we really are going to need and how family is going to step in. Our study in the book of Ruth, which we've <clears throat> been going through the last several weeks, is, is taking us down that path. In, in our study of Ruth, just to catch you up if you haven't been with us to where we are today, uh, Ruth had a horrible tragedy that befell her. Her sister Orpah and her mother-in-law Naomi, uh, they had some tragic losses. Naomi lost her husband and her two sons, which left Naomi and her daughters-in-law alone together without husbands, which is a really, really rough predicament in the ancient Middle East. There just wasn't a social safety net for them. There wasn't a place for them to find protection and love and care. So it was really, really hard. Orpah um, went back to her place of origin, but Ruth, while she could have, and Naomi encouraged her to go back to her family in Moab, Ruth said, no, I'm going to stay with you. I'm going to go with you to Bethlehem. So that's what they did. They, they went to Bethlehem, but the impact on Naomi that we read earlier in chapter one, earlier part of chapter two, was just devastating. She, she even basically said, change my name from Naomi to bitter. That's who I am. That's what I am. God is shaking his fist at me. So she had lost hope. She had lost touch with any comfort or compassion from God. It was all about bitterness. And then when Ruth and Naomi arrived in Bethlehem, Ruth went out to the fields just to pick up stalks and to get some grain that the harvesters would leave behind in their, in their fields after they had gone through for their gleaning. And she found favor with a landowner named Boaz. And Boaz, we, we learned earlier in this chapter, was a, a near relative of Naomi's ex or lost deceased husband, Elimelech. And when Boaz learned that Ruth was this Moabite woman was in come back to Bethlehem with Naomi. He invited Ruth to stay and collect grain but behind his harvesters. He even told the guys that were doing the harvesting, leave some extra for her so that she could have some food. Invited her to come and eat and have water with them. Was really, really caring well. And at the end of the day, she took her basket of grain back to Naomi. And her mother-in-law's response is in chapter 2, verse 19. 
Where did you gather all this grain today, Naomi asked. Where did you work? May the Lord bless the one who helped you. So Ruth told her mother-in-law about the man in whose field she had worked. She said, the man I worked with today is a man named Boaz. <clears throat> so that catches us up to where we are today to jump into chapter 2 in the book of Ruth, verse 20. May the Lord bless him, Naomi told her daughter-in-law. He is showing kindness to us as well as to your dead husband. That man is one of our closest relatives, one of our family redeemers. Then Ruth said, what's more, Boaz even told me to come back and stay with the harvesters until the entire harvest is completed. Good, Naomi exclaimed. Do as he said, my daughter. Stay with his young women right through the whole harvest. You might be harassed in other fields, but you'll be safe with him. So Ruth worked alongside the women in Boaz's fields, gathered grain with them until the end of the barley harvest. Then she continued working with them through the wheat harvest in early summer, and all the while she lived with her mother-in-law. Now the expression in verse 20 right away, we see something shifting in Naomi's mind and heart. Remember earlier it was, call me bitter, the Lord has you know, raised, his, raised his fist at me, God's causing me all of this pain. But after hearing about Boaz and his care for Ruth, something seems to shift and she pronounces a blessing over him. And a blessing in the ancient culture was more than just, you know, God's being good or I'm having a good day. The blessing in an ancient culture was kind of summoning God to show his favor on someone. There, there's something really deep in a blessing. Wanting that person's welfare. In Genesis chapter 14, following a military victory uh, for Abram and his allies, we read this kind of a blessing. This is what a blessing is in the Old Testament. And Melchizedek, the king of Salem, a priest of God most high brought Abraham some bread and wine. Melchizedek blessed Abraham with his blessing. Blessed be Abraham, Abram by God most high, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high who has defeated you or defeated your enemies for you. So you see that, that sense of God shining his face. God doing something wonderful for this person. In Deuteronomy 33, Moses blesses the people of Israel. This is the blessing that Moses, the man of God, gave to the people of Israel before his death. The Lord came from Mount Sinai and dawned upon us from Mount Seir. He shone forth from Mount Paran, and he came from Meribah Kadesh with a flaming fire in his right hand. Indeed, he loves his people. His holy ones are in his hands. They follow in his steps and accept his teaching. So there are many other occurrences of a, of a formal blessing in the Old Testament. It's safe to say, however, that those kinds of words don't flow out of someone who is like, call me bitter. Something has shifted. Something is changing. Perhaps it's because she's moved closer to home. She's closer to family, familiar place. Uh, to use what we would call kind of modern understanding of grief and some psychological understanding, we know that, that misplaced anger is a sign of unresolved grief so if you have a really big loss sometimes you're just mad at everybody until you kind of sort through it so maybe as she sorted through her loss the the anger was was sort of subsiding and decreasing but i think the key ingredient in what changed in naomi's heart is found in her next statement verse 20 he is showing his kindness to us as well as your dead husband he is showing, and I think that's God, is showing his kindness to us, as well as your dead husband. And there's some debate on whether that he is Boaz or is Yahweh, is God. I, I, I tend to lean towards it being God because I think 
That's what Naomi is declaring. She, she, God was the one who raised his fist to her. God was the one who was being totally ruthless. God was the one who took everything away from her. And now God is showing his kindness to her. He's not abandoned his kindness. This is the second time, by the way, that kindness is used or is quoted from Naomi in chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. On the way, Naomi said to her two daughters, so this is when they were still all moving toward Bethlehem before Orpah had gone home. And go back to your mother's homes and may the Lord reward you for your kindness to your husbands and me. May the Lord bless you with the security of another marriage. Then she kissed them goodbye and they all broke down and wept. Now kindness is a really important theological concept in the story of Ruth. We have, to, we have to grasp what kindness really means in this story. But the word we use for kindness and how we understand kindness is, is a long way from what the kindness is that's used in this Old Testament text. The word hesed in the Old Testament is, can be kindness, but it's so much more than that. It's a cluster of concepts. Kind of kindness, as we would understand it, love, mercy, goodness, grace, benevolence, and, and some, some mixed with a, a faithfulness to fulfill your obligations. There's, there's kind of a covenant obligation to do what you say you're going to do in that word hesed in the Old Testament. It's used by God, it's, or it's used of God and of man. When God described himself to Moses on Mount Sinai, he included this in, uh, in his own description of his character. The Lord passed in front of Moses calling out, Yahweh the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy, I am slow to anger, I am filled with unfailing love, I'm filled with hesed, I'm filled with this covenant obligation to do what for you what I've promised to do. I will lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations, I will forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin, but I do not excuse the guilty. I lay the sins of parents upon their children and grandchildren, the entire family is affected even children to a third and fourth generation. And David, in his prayer in Psalm 23, uses this term. Surely, surely your goodness and unfailing love, that hesed, that, that kindness, that mercy, will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will live in the house of the Lord forever. I think when you understand all that's in that word hesed, that, that prayer even means more. What is David saying is going to pursue me? Is it just God's, God likes me today? No, it's God, God is, God's faithfulness to fulfill everything he promised for me is pursuing me. His covenant love is after me. That's what David was praying. So Naomi isn't just saying, I'm having a good day. She's saying, no, God's kindness. I'm, what I thought was gone, that he wasn't fulfilling his promise, he wasn't doing in me and my life and my family what he said he would do, I'm beginning to think he might be. I'm beginning to think that God is a God who's fulfilling his promises. This is what transformed her bitterness into hope. See, Boaz isn't just any farmer in Bethlehem. As we re read in chapter 2, verse 1, Boaz was a near relative of Naomi's husband, deceased husband Elimelech. In the second half of verse 20, we learn why this is so significant. She explained to Ruth that this man is one of our closest relatives, and she said he is a family redeemer. Some of your Bibles might say a kinsman redeemer. Chapter 1, verse 9, Naomi prayed that Ruth would find another husband, would be married again. She was thinking in her homeland, Moab, and now 
the wheels are turning, that maybe there's another plan. Maybe this chance encounter with, or seemingly chance encounter with Boaz is going to provide another path for Ruth. See, the concept of a family redeemer or a kinsman redeemer is, is really, really important. It's so critical to the whole narrative of Ruth and what we're, what we're reading about. The solidarity of the family in the ancient East is so important to your, your commitment to your clan, to your people, to your family is paramount. It's still like that in many cultures today around the world, in many societies. It's, it's very much contrasted with how we live which in an individualistic society, which I, I'm really wanting my family to be around me until they get in my way. And when my family stops serving me, then I'm, I'm not going to because it's about my rights, it's about my desires, it's about my preference, it's about my dreams, it's about my hopes, it's about my plan for my life. And so we, we in our culture put personal um, rights, personalhood, my personhood way above family. And in this culture, and many cult- other cultures today, that flips to where it's, it's your commitment to your family that is paramount. What you feel and think and want and your purposes for your own life, that actually is not important because it's what you do for your family. There's an obligation. And so personalhood, you know, personhood, who I am as an individual, takes second place to my obligations for my family. And so this is the, the culture in this where this family redeemer concept comes into play. If there was a duty that a man had in his family that he couldn't fulfill, it was the obligation of other men in the family to step in and to do that. That's the, the basic concept of a family redeemer, especially when there's a crisis that someone can't get out of. Now, the Old Testament doesn't give us an exhaustive list of what the responsibilities and duties are of a family redeemer. That's case in point is, what Naomi is referring to is not, other in, is not in any other place in the Old Testament specifically disca- described as one of those duties, but obviously it is. But here are some of the areas, some of the responsibilities, I should say, that a family redeemer would have in ancient Israel. First is to ensure that the hereditary property of the clan never passes out of the clan. And that's in Leviticus chapter 25, verses 25 and 30. So if we have family property and I get in trouble financially and need to sell my property, family steps in and buys it because the land's going to stay in our family, in our clan. Another responsibility from Leviticus 25 verses 47 to 55 is to maintain the freedom of individuals within the clan by buying back those who have been sold into slavery because of their poverty. So in this culture, one way to satisfy your creditors is to sell yourself into slavery. And then it's your family's responsibility to come and buy you back so you don't have to remain a slave. Then this next one is kind of intriguing. To track down and execute the murderers of near relatives. That's the responsibility of a family redeemer in the Old Testament from Numbers chapter 35 verse 12. So that justice for your family is part of your responsibility in this culture. Another one is to receive restitution of money on behalf of a deceased family member um, who's a victim of a crime. So if, if there's an award given in a, what we would think of as a court or a judgment for a family member and they can't receive it, you receive it for them. And then to ensure justice is served in a law. Oh, that was in Numbers chapter 5, verse 8, by the way, the restitution of money. And then in Job 19.25, to ensure that justice is served involving a lawsuit of a relative. 
That's Job chapter 19, verse 25. So you're there for each other as family members. You have responsibility. I would say even an obligation to step in and do these things because your loyalty to family is everything. And so while there's no specific description of the duty of a family redeemer to marry the widow of a close relative, from what Naomi's saying, obviously it is a known responsibility as well. We don't have that. We do see in Deuteronomy 25 the duties of a family redeemer, I suppose, would be to come into play when a close relative dies, leaving a widow with no sons. In Deuteronomy 25, it says that then the brother of that deceased husband would marry that woman and have children to keep that progeny going because then the son who was born would carry on the name of that man who had died. This sounds really extreme and really wrong, doesn't it? It's like we... I kind of like my brother-in-law or my sister-in-law, but we're not going here. You know, this is, this is not something we're going to do. But remember, this, we're thinking in a whole different frame of reference. We're thinking individually. I love this. This is what I want. This, in this culture, women had no rights anyway. They were property. So they're just, they had no decision in this. And they were also totally unprotected if they weren't married. So it was dangerous for a woman to not be married. And, and in the social structure, it was just something that you stepped in. So it's for the good of the family that this happens. That's what we need to remember as we go through this. And so Naomi knew what that meant. Naomi knew that there was, there was a way for God to fulfill his promise. There was a way for God to bring about this family Now let's move on to verse 21. Conversation picks up with Ruth's response. Um, In the the, uh, New Living Translation, by the way, it says, then Ruth said, if you're reading in the NIV or the ESV or other um, translations, it says, then Ruth the Moabite said. I'm not sure why the New Living Translation dropped the Moabite from this verse. If you look in the footnotes, there's a little note that says the Moabite. I think it should be there because every other area, the the theme that, one of the themes that the narrator is giving us is Ruth is a foreigner. She is outside. She's not in the clan. So I think it should be there. And I mean, I'm sure the translators just thought it's smoother to to not put it in there because it's other places, but I think it should be there. So Ruth 2.21, and Ruth the Moabite said, besides, he said to me, you shall keep me keep close by my young men until they finished all my harvest and then the wheels really get turning for Naomi the wheels get turning now Ruth had a safe place for the next two months because that's probably how much time from there to the end of the harvest for a few months Ruth has a safe place to go she's going to be able to gather food she's going to get food herself she's going to be safe apparently from what Ruth said in verse 20, or what Naomi said in verse 22, there was danger if she would just be roaming from field to field, so now she's going to be protected. She's going to be safe. But this invitation um, from Boaz took that fear away, so she could know that they're secure. And we don't know if there were other direct interactions between Ruth and Boaz during this time. There were a few months that went on, so we don't know. The text doesn't tell us if there were further interactions. What we do know from verse 23 is that Ruth lived with her mother-in-law, during this time. And then chapter 3 takes us to the execution of Naomi's plan. Jump in with me at chapter 3, verse 1. One day Naomi said to Ruth, my daughter, it's time that I found a permanent home for you so that you'll be provided for. Boaz is a close relative of ours, and he's been very kind by letting you gather grain with his young women. Tonight he will be winnowing barley at the threshing floor, 
Now do as I tell you. Take a bath and put on perfume and dress in your nicest clothes. Then go to the threshing floor, but don't let Boaz see you until he has finished eating and drinking. Be sure to notice where he lies down and then go and uncover his feet and lie down there. He will tell you what to do. I will do everything you say, Ruth replied. So she went down to the threshing floor that night and followed the instructions of her mother-in-law. After Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he lay down at the far end of the pile of grain and went to sleep. And then Ruth came and quietly uncovered his feet and lay down. If there was ever a passage in the Bible that we need help to understand, it's this one, right? If there was ever a passage in the Bible, it's like, what is going on here? Help me with this because I'm, I'm getting lost all over uh, how do we read this and not get off into like some R-rated movie scene or something? It's really, really hard to begin with. And, and by the way, we wouldn't run away from that. There are other stories in the Old Testament that do get off into that. Of Some of our heroes have, have you know, sexual indiscretions and, and immorality that we, we understand. So I'm not saying can't happen. I don't know that, we ha- that the text requires it here. Let me tell you why. To begin with, the, the big theme of this story is how noble and virtuous Ruth is and how noble and virtuous and admirable Boaz is. As, so it just doesn't fit that you would have these noble descriptions of these people and then this torrid carnal scene in the middle of it. It just doesn't fit into the, the bigger narrative. It also helps to remember that there were customs and cultural decorum in the ancient world that make little sense to us. And we just don't understand what that act means. It meant something there, but I'm totally lost as to what that means or why you would do that. But Naomi realized that for reasons we don't understand in this text or haven't been given to us, Boaz, while the family redeemer, was not pursuing Ruth. So she must have said, something's wrong here because he is the family redeemer and he's invited you to come along and to gather grain, but he's not moving toward marriage. He's not saying, hey, you know, how about if we talk about marriage because I'm the family redeemer and you need a family redeemer and that's our obligation. So she crafted this plan for for Ruth to kind of push that. The harvest had finished and Boaz was at the threshing floor, which would have been outside of Bethlehem somewhere, usually on a hilltop where they would thresh the wheat and the chaff would blow away and the, the wheat would fall. And then they would, usually they sleep there because they want to protect it from animals or thieves that would come along. At first glance, Naomi's instruction sounds like, take a bath, put on some perfume, get your nicest dress, and go get a husband. That sounds like what what she's saying. I think a more palatable explanation would involve the conclusion of Ruth's period of mourning over the loss of her husband. See, Boaz may have resisted moving toward and pursuing Ruth because she may have still been wearing and acting like a woman in mourning, grieving the loss of her husband. And so until that's done, life doesn't move on. The Old Testament signs of mourning vary depending on the description or the circumstances and the relationship, but they can include weeping, remaining in your house, cutting off your hair, not taking care of yourself, not practicing basic hygiene, uh, wearing sackcloth, certain clothes, neglecting otherwise proper practices. So people saw when people were mourning and grieving. Naomi was likely 
telling Ruth, get rid of your widow clothes, take the clothes that signify that you are grieving and in a period of mourning, and put on normal clothes. And the New Living Translation says, put on your nicest clothes. That's technically not required. It's just put on your cloak, what everyone wore. The term she refers here is like, put on, put on your cloak. We have some support for this kind of terminology being used when you come out of a period of mourning. When David was coming out or getting back into life after losing the son of his affair with Bathsheba, 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 20, we read, Then David got up from the ground, washed, put on lotions, and changed his clothes. He went to the tabernacle and worshiped the Lord. After that, he returned to the palace and was served the food and ate. So you see the similarities. When you, when you stop grieving, when you stop mourning, you move back into life. I think that's possibly what Naomi was saying. Ruth, it's time to get back into life. It's time to, it's time to live now. It's time to seek that next place in your life. So Ruth went to the threshing floor where Boaz was likely to sleep, probably to protect his, his uh, crops from the animals and stuff, like I said. After a long day, Ruth was watching. He'd eat and drink, and then he'd lay down. And by the way, the drinking in this text, it doesn't require drunkenness. It could, but it's not like in Genesis 19 when Lot's daughters that purposefully got their father drunk. So it, there's nothing in this text that requires that. Our minds kind of go there sometimes. It's the next direct command that's generated so much speculation and discussion. What did Naomi mean by the instruction for Ruth to uncover Boaz's feet? And some of your translations, his lower limbs. Uh, then lie down. What, what is she supposed to be doing? Now, the, and it even gets more tricky because there is literary support in the ancient world, extra biblical support for feet being a euphemism for other body parts. And so, you know, it's not, it wouldn't be totally wrong to think, okay, this is, this is a euphemistic term for a, a real torrid kind of a scene here. However, I don't think it requires that because if feet are euphemistically used for other body parts, they're also literally used for feet. So it still could be take the blanket off of his feet. Um, so we don't need to read in, I don't think, any immoral or, or real temptress kind of activity here. I don't think Boaz's response is going to support that in a minute anyway. It doesn't even say lie down right next to him or lie down with him. It just says lie down. So here's where we're at. I don't think we have to read into this any kind of real raunchy kind of scene that happens in the middle of Ruth. But I can't say for sure what it means because there's just a lot of mystery into what kind of stuff this is all about. It's a courtship behavior that we don't know and the Bible doesn't tell us. Was there meaning in pulling the blanket off of his feet that we don't know? Was there meaning in laying down next to him? And I, I don't know. It might be that Ruth was just, Naomi just said, it's cold out there, take the blanket off his feet, he'll wake up, you know, because it'll get cold, and then there you are. I mean, it could be something as simple as that, we just, we just don't know for sure. What we do read is about Boaz's reaction in verse 8. Around midnight, Boaz suddenly woke up and turned over. He was surprised to find a woman lying at his feet. Who are you, he asked. I'm your servant, Ruth, she replied. Spread the corner of your covering over me, for you are my family redeemer. The Lord bless you, my daughter, Boaz exclaimed. You are showing even more family loyalty now than you did before, for you have not gone after younger, a younger man 
whether rich or poor. Now don't worry about a thing, my daughter. I will do what is necessary, for everyone in town knows you are a virtuous woman. So you see, his response even supports the virtue and the, the noble character and even this, comp, this uh, connection that they have, this encounter. So Boaz was cold, Ruth had taken the blanket off, he wakes up, it's dark out, he's not sure, he sees a figure, someone else laying there next to him. He asks, who are you? Who are you? And this is one of the most powerful parts of this book for me anyway. Because remember we've talked about Ruth's title, that label that always follows her? What is it? Ruth the Moabite, Ruth the Moabite, Ruth the Moabite, Ruth the Moabite. Ruth the Moabite. But what does it say, what does she say in response to Boaz in verse 9? I am your servant, Ruth. And just Ruth. I think that's really significant. Because like us, Ruth carried a title that defined her to people. Everyone saw her as that. Until she was face to face with her Redeemer. When she was face to face with her Redeemer and he said, who are you? I'm Ruth. Just Ruth. Isn't that important for us? Because we go through life with all kinds of labels. They just keep piling up. Your mom, your dad, your boss, your employee, your pastor, your elder, your, your race may define you, your ethnicity, your skills, how smart you are, how smart you aren't, your, you know, whether you're skinny or fat or whether you have a high-paying job or a low-paying job, whether you have a disability, whether you are Republican or Democrat, whether where you stand on social issues, what, whatever it is, um, your challenges, your temptations, and what about this one, the past failures in your life when you've really screwed up and hurt people? We carry those as, as labels and they, they seem like they just come with us everywhere we go. But when I'm, when I'm alone with my Redeemer, I'm just John. Just John. Isn't that awesome? Whether it's the first time or after 30 years of walking with Jesus, however long you've been, it's a good reminder that when we're face to face with our Redeemer, it's just John. And he accepts you and gives you that new identity. She wasn't shy about a request to cover or spread wings over, you know, put your blanket over me, which again sounds kind of weird, but spreading your wings over was an idiom in the ancient world for, for marry me, you know, put me under your protection. In fact, we, we often would, would see in that in this area, in this era, in this age. Actually, part of a marriage would be for a man to put his robe or his blanket over the woman as a sign. You're, you're mine now. You're protected. There's, there's a place for you here. That's where you are. So that's what, what Ruth was asking. Will you, will you give me a place of protection? Because she's a foreigner. She doesn't belong. She doesn't have a family. She has nobody. Will you bring me in and give me a place? And give me a name? Again, what a powerful, powerful picture of what Christ does for us. He brings us into the family. He allows us to have his protection. He covers us with his wings so that we can know that safety. So Boaz went on to bless her, point out that she's shown more hesed, more loving kindness than she had previously, even when she committed herself to stay with Naomi. 
Rather than chasing after other men, she demonstrated a faithfulness to the family and a faithfulness to, to seek after God. However murky it was for Ruth, she kept, she kept holding on to what she had and wanting more. That's, spirit, that's the spiritual journey, isn't it? I'm holding on to what I have and I want more. Whether you have yet to encounter Christ as your Savior or you have and you're still wanting to know more about this walk with God, more about what this spirit-filled life can be, that's a wonderful picture and so now, in verse 12, Boaz adds a slight wrinkle to this story. It seems like there's another relative even closer than Boaz to Ruth. Ruth chapter 3, verse 13, he said, Stay here tonight, and in the morning I will talk to him, to this other relative. If he's willing to redeem you very well, let him marry you. But if he's not willing, then as surely as the Lord lives, I will redeem you myself. Now lie down here until morning. So Ruth stayed there in the morning. Boaz gave her some grain, had her go off before other people were around to, to save her reputation from being marred, I'm sure, and gave her a bunch of grain to take back to give to her mother-in-law as a sign of, this is, this is going to happen. You're going to be cared for. There's a place for you now. Her response in verse 18 was for Ruth to wait patiently while Boaz sorts this out. Ruth had nowhere to turn. She was an outsider. Her dreams had been dashed. She embraced the faith of her mother-in-law and held on to what she had, and God kept bringing more and more. And that quest led her out of the darkness and face-to-face -face with her Redeemer. What a picture of the gospel. What a picture of our lives when we have nowhere to turn, when our hopes and dreams are dashed. And however murky, we're hanging on to the truth that we can hold to. We're hanging on to what we know. And it might even be, I'm hanging on to your faith because right now I don't have much. I'm, I'm holding on to what you're holding on to. But I'm holding on to that with some faith that there's a covenant God who keeps his promises and who's redeemed us in Christ. Christ who removes our stain, keeps us from being outsiders and envelops us under his wings into the family of God. Let's thank him for that. Father, this story has puzzling elements and incredibly encouraging elements. Thank you that Ruth found her kinsman redeemer. Found a place where she could just be Ruth. Found a, found a place where she could be in family again. And not be an outsider. Not be a foreigner. Not be someone who's an alien. And we're there too, Lord. Without you, without our redeemer, without Jesus and what he did on the cross, we don't belong. We don't have a family. We don't have a standing. So thank you for your love that sent your son to be our redeemer. Help us to walk that out this week, not to live as foreigners and outsiders, but to live our lives as people who've been face-to-face -face with our redeemer, and he calls us by our name. Amen.